Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. So if you want to get me some questions, email them to me at that email address. It is below in the description section. All right, guys, if you have not checked out my podcast this week with Andrew Seidel, I really, really recommend that you do so because we talk about, um, is America a Christian nation? And we are not talking about whether there is a greater percentage of Christians living in America or not, because that's one way of looking at whether this is a Christian nation or not. And clearly on that demographic, we are. But in terms of um, where we founded on Christian principles and what does that mean exactly and how do we approach this and talk about it? And more importantly, how do we deal with those groups who are rather extremist groups on the right who insist on a kind of Christian nationalism? That's a thing. It exists out there. And there's more than a few people in this country who think that Um, the equivalent of Christian Sharia law is a great idea. So I do not, and I think that uh, that should be, that idea should be pushed back against. And uh, Andrew agrees with me, and he just wrote a book about this. So we had a podcast on this, and I um, did not just spoil the whole thing for you. I hope you will actually check out what we had to say. Uh, Also, um, I wanted to put a plug in for Patreon real fast. Just, you know, hey guys, new subscribers to the channel here, folks who maybe um, have been watching for a little while or you're newly coming on. I This is a fan-funded channel. I am able to keep going and doing what I'm doing because you guys uh, actually helped me make that happen by supporting this channel through my Patreon. So um, link is below. And if you guys will check that out, that'd be great. I've also got merch link below that you guys can also check out if you would like something back. Uh, I like giving back. I don't like just, uh, you know, not doing that. So anyway, you guys can check that out as well. Now, let's get on with your questions. Nick C. If I understand correctly, Scientology does a bit of bait and switch in its treatment of gay people. When a gay person first walks in the door and starts doing introductory services, they're assured that it's okay to be gay in Scientology. As they progress, however, they are told that their condition must be handled. But what kind of handling is implied here? Does Scientology have a gay conversion program in place? Or is the gay person simply expected to go back into the closet? Or become sexually inactive? Or something else altogether? All right, like many other things in Scientology, this has a lot of seemingly contradictory ideas and weird sort of practices and standards in place here. So let's see if we can't talk about this, break this down a little bit. There's a lot here, and I'm trying to crunch a lot into a short period of time. So, um, yeah, so let let me do my best. Basically, the Church of Scientology attitude or the philosophy about its members are that Scientologists should be ethical, productive people, the able of society, who are going to come into Scientology and are going to rehabilitate their spiritual state um, as a thetan, as an immortal spiritual being. And that Thetan is tied to, in this time and place, and for quite some time over the millennia that that this universe has existed, this Thetan has been tied to a body. Uh, A male body, a female body, an alien body, different kinds of bodies. There's been millions of them down the years that 
We've all been around in this universe, according to L. Ron Hubbard. There have been cat people and, you know, people who have been kind of oriented in that direction. And there have been invader forces with bodies that have big claws, lobster claws, and, and big antenna and alien, you know, sort of uh, bodies and things. Yet, here and now, there is this idea that despite this variety and diversity of bodies and species and, and life that we've experienced in this universe, there is this insistence that here on Earth at this time and place, you have a male body or a female body. And if you do not align your thinking to and, and align your actions, your sexual activity, to the gender of this body that you have been, that you randomly picked up, um, because people don't go after specific kinds of bodies usually. You just kind of go get a, whatever body is available in the, in the hospital when you are flitting about as a thetan ready to pick up another body. You go pick one up and you um, are supposed to raise it and you're supposed to act in accordance with its gender. That right there doesn't make a lot of sense, right? If you if you see the whole picture I'm putting together here, then you see that gender or sexual orientation shouldn't matter at all to a spiritual entity who has lived every gender and every identity, you know, good bad good guy, bad guy, over and over, thousands and thousands and millions of times over the course of a Thetan's life. Why would this be of such importance? Because Hubbard said it was, really for no other reason than that. It's not a logically consistent position that you have lived all these lives, that you are an immortal spiritual being, and yet you have to conform with the gender identity of your body um, in this lifetime that you're in right now. But that is the way it that Hubbard thinks things should be. He was raised in the you know in the Midwest turn of the century. He's uh, about as conservative, you know, classically conservative social views as as you can get. Uh, and he was preaching out in 1950s and 60s. So there was no this thing, you know, such thing as sexual liberties or liberation or uh, equal rights or any of that. So that I just wanted to kind of expound on that a little bit to kind of lay a base line there so you could see where Scientology actually sits. It sits in a, uh, on this topic of homosexuality or sexual orientation, it sits on a bedrock of hypocrisy and, and nonsense. It doesn't make any sense, right, that, that morally speaking or ethically speaking, a, a spiritual entity would have to comply with the gender or identity uh, of the body that it's picked up. You know, but, but Hubbard insisted on this, and, and Scientologists don't really think about it too much. So what they're trying to do to get to the here and now and the practical matter of Scientology is when a person comes in who is not a straight, you know, cis male or female, traditional gender roles, if they, if they step outside of that in any way, have attraction for same sex in some, for some reason of, at any level of the spectrum, whether you're full on, you know, bisexual or homosexual or pansexual, they, whatever it is, if it's not straight, cis, male or female, then it is considered unethical. 
It's the idea as to why it would be unethical. Well, it really doesn't make a lot of sense based on everything I just explained to you. But the way they think about this in Scientology is that you are, if you're doing perverse sexual activity, something that's not cis activity, then you are re-stimulating past incidents of of unethical behavior where you know you're being a male but you're acting like a female that's that somehow in Hubbard's mind and in in the world of Scientology this is unethical activity you're actually doing yourself harm by not you know being the body that you have and and are supposed to be so it's an ethics problem, right? It's like if you, it, it's it's like how people think of people who have a drinking problem or who have a sexual addiction problem or you know some kind of problem like that. You think eh, there's something a little off with that person. And we've, of course, you know, with addiction, it, we are learning now that it, you know the whole ethical judgment value on that isn't really so helpful to helping people out of situ, uh, you know, conditions uh, or addictions that they're in. Uh, but Scientology is not any is not a progressive situation. They don't they're not up with that. They are perfectly happy to judge you uh, as much as and as hard as they want to uh, if you're doing something that Scientologists think is unethical. So, what they're trying to do in auditing you or addressing your homosexuality, let's say, is they're trying to get you to act differently in the real world. Um, event with an eye toward eventually stripping out of your being any urge or tendency you have to commit sexual activity that is not your gender identity, right? Not your body. So, and, and so, so the first level is just get you to stop acting on your thoughts, okay? Get you to stop having gay sex, stop... Um, you know, giving into your attractions or desires to maybe watch porn or hook up with people of the same sex or whatever the the situation is, right? I'm using homosexuality as an example here, but, um, you know, it could be any, uh, what they would call a dramatization, right? Any activity in the real world, they want you to knock that off. And that's going to be the first level of handling is they're going to show you L. Ron Hubbard's writings about why homosexuality or perverted activity is unethical and restimulative and will cause your bank to build up even more, your bank being your reactive mind, the, the, the stresses and traumas of your life, your, you know, as a, as a Thetan, you know, the, over the millennia, have accumulated in this thing called a reactive mind and it, and it acts against you and, and makes you act in ways that are not rational or sane, according to L. Ron Hubbard. So, the first thing they want you to do is get discipline in on that. Control that, right? Control yourself. Um, again, with the idea being that it's unethical activity. And if you're doing something that's unethical, then you're not going to get any gains from the auditing that you're getting, okay? In the same way that if you were stealing from your company or you were cheating on your wife or something, you'd also be doing something unethical. And so they would discourage that because they want you to get gains from your auditing. Now, the auditing that they're going to give you is going to be, there's different kinds of auditing that they can give you to address homosexual urges or tendencies or, or anything, you know, perverted activities. Um, they could address it with Dianetics. They could go and look for engrams, you know, incidents of pain and unconsciousness in your past. 
and go explore those and relive them and sort of try to blow the stress and trauma and the, the, the charge that's connected with that. And maybe that will somehow pop the urge you have, right? Because the idea is that there's something in you, there's something making you act that way, this in this perverted way. And that something is a decision that you made, a series of decisions that you made, a number of decisions you've made called postulates, decisions about how you're going to be or how you're going to act or how things are. This is a, a postulate is a, is a way a Thetan creates things. And you can create your own trouble by postulating way in the past. Maybe you postulated um, some things that are counter- gender identity, right? You've, you've postulated that you're always, that, that females are always the ones who have it easy, and so you're always going to be a female. And then ruck of the die, you got a male body, but you still have this postulate from the past that females are the ones who have it easy, and so you're always going to be a female, but here you are stuck with a male body, and so now you're acting like a female in a male body, and that's weird, and it's perverted, and it's strange, and you shouldn't be doing that. And it's all because of this postulate you made, you see. So if in Scientology, if you can go and you know, pop that postulate and, and recognize that that's what you're operating on because you would have forgotten about this. It was lifetimes ago and it's, it's sort of subconsciously affecting you now, you see. Uh, but if you can go in your auditing and, and release that, then you wouldn't have that urge anymore. There are also evil intentions or evil purposes that you could have, have uh, postulated or created back in the past that could be affecting your identity now, your sexual identity. And, and you, could you, know, you could imagine a, a thousand different evil purposes that might be on this line. Like, uh, I want to destroy all women, right? Uh, I don't know, you know, something happened to you 10 million years ago and you decided you're gonna destroy all women. And from that point forward, that's always gonna kind of be in your thinking. You're gonna be kind of terrible to women and you know, this kind of thing. I have to say right now, of course, this is all just L. Ron Hubbard stuff. I'm not, I, I don't believe any of this is true, but this is what they think in Scientology, okay? So, um, so you made some evil purpose or some destructive intention to kill all women, and now here you are, and you're in a female body, and you have this intention to destroy all women, and it's sort of sitting there at the root of your thinking, and you got all kinds of you know, you got thousands of these purposes and intentions and ideas building up. So really, this is all just a way of, of rationalizing behavior in Scientology using these ideas of postulates and evil purposes. And the idea is you can go into an auditing session and there's different ways you could address it, but you can find that evil purpose and you can pop that, right? Because the idea in Scientology auditing is if you recognize something, you, re you see it for what it is, it's supposed to go away. It's supposed to not bother you or, or be a problem anymore. Uh, it doesn't ever really work out that way, of course, but that's the theory in Scientology is by viewing something completely and totally as it is, you make it vanish and disappear forever. So the idea is you're trying to find these postulates or find these evil purposes or destructive intentions and, and see them fully for what they are at the time you created them millions of years ago, right? and thereby make them blow, and so you don't have that problem anymore. And then, theoretically, you wouldn't have the urge to have gay sex anymore. You wouldn't have the urge to destroy all women or, you know, be a woman or be a man or whatever the thing is that's screwing you up. 
Okay, I, I know this all sounds nuts, okay, and I, I feel a little nuts even explaining it right now because this used to make a lot more sense to me and now I'm talking about it and I'm like, this really doesn't make any sense. But this is how Scientologists think about this and, and I thought I would give the most detailed answer I could to try to explain why they think that auditing is something that will work on this. It is not you know, the way they might go about trying to find those evil purposes or those destructive intentions, there's about three or four different ways, different kind of auditing procedures that can be done to, to, to look for those things. And they will start on that kind of a program. And they might also, there's going to be a lot of security checking on the subject of sex, gay sex, uh, perverted activities, you know, from your childhood, etc. They're going to want to clean all that up and get all of your overts, your sins off. So there's going to be sex checking also. And this is the kind of program you can expect. And I watched some people go through programs like this when I was in Scientology. And I saw one guy who was very flamboyantly uh, gay. He was a hairdresser in Santa Barbara, a really nice guy, super nice. And he struggled with this for years. But he said that he uh, got this auditing and he no longer felt like he was gay anymore, even though he certainly looked and acted like he was gay, but he didn't practice, you know, homosexual sex anymore. And so Scientology was happy with him. Um, but oddly, I don't think he ever got too much farther now that I think about it after he did that auditing. I think he kind of took off after that. So maybe they weren't so successful at auditing the gay away. Um, there was another woman who was a practicing homosexual who was um, trying to get to the level of clear and then move on to OT. And the case supervisor in that circumstance told me there was no way she was ever going to get onto the OT levels if she was still a practicing homosexual. And they, so they were trying to address that, her problem with, some, with a specific advanced form of Dianetics that looks for evil purposes. Um, so it's called Expanded Dianetics. So, like I said, there's different ways you can go about it, and I knew about three or four people. I'm thinking about two other people right now that I knew over the years, and basically they just didn't go any further than, than the state of clear. You know, they kind of came in and, and were in Scientology for a while, and then they took off. I've never met anybody who claimed to be or was okay with being homosexual or having any kind of LGBT ideas or urges or you know, identity um, who was an OT in Scientology. You know, we have rumors about John Travolta, and, and there have been rumors in the past about Tom Cruise, which I've never believed. Tom Cruise doesn't have a gay bone in his body, as far as I can tell. John Travolta, on the other hand, does seem to, and I think that he got onto the OT levels simply because they were desperate to keep him in Scientology or, or get him onto the good stuff. And this was back in the 80s that he first got onto the OT levels, I believe, and that things were a little looser back then. Um, you know, all this anti-gay stuff and, and, the, and really coming down hard on this is, is something that is more uh, an, an artifact of Miscavige's time in Scientology. Even though in the 60s and 70s there were, you know, gay people coming around in Scientology, but they didn't really talk about it as much or be as open about it. So I don't have as much information about, you know, what the culture was like for gay people in Scientology prior to my time in it, right? I don't really, they didn't really talk about it a lot. So anyway, there's a whole bleh on that, and I hope that that helped answer your question, Nick, and, um, and give you some idea of what's what with all of that. Emily, 
I'm somewhat fascinated with the concept of moral injury lately. I think it's very germane to current and former cult members. I think if someone leaving a cult doesn't address their own moral injury, they can't really heal. What I mean by it is that for the vast majority of people, doing something they know is wrong, even when they persuade themselves it's okay, is traumatic. Like PTSD, it was first discussed regarding soldiers, but research is swiftly expanding to other groups. If someone commits an act they know is morally wrong and it doesn't cause trauma, that's most likely because they are a narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, or otherwise have damaged empathy. So many people in cults have done things they knew were wrong at the time, but because of the cult, they rationalized it away. The Sea Org is entirely this, I think. And also, though I'm not a psychologist, I think it's very possible that one reason Marty Rathbun turned out the way he has is because he didn't thoroughly address his own moral injury. How could he have time with what Scientology was doing to him? I think dealing with moral injury is central to dealing with cult trauma and often with abuse trauma generally. What do you think? Hey, Emily, thanks for the question here. And I'm going to push back a little bit on this, but let me, let me tell you what I'm thinking. You're kind of laying some judgment on people here. You're saying that you don't think people can possibly recover from a traumatic cult experience unless they basically take responsibility for or look at, take a good solid look at least, at the injury that they did and the traumatic um, things that happened to them and the fact that some of that trauma came from them violating their own moral integrity or the idea that they were knowingly doing things that were wrong, but they did it anyway because of the group dynamics or something. And the reason I'm going to push back on that is because I don't, you know, there are definitely Definitely circumstances where I and other people in the Sea Org or in Scientology knowingly did something that we, you know, that we knew we weren't supposed to do. And yes, there is definitely, I guess you could say trauma connected with that. There's certainly a tension, you know, of, on those times. Like if you knowingly, you know, ran somebody's credit card higher than they, they had uh, authorized you to, you would know you're doing something goofy there, right? But here's the thing, and this is really important. The person does it anyway because they actually have rationalized how it's a right thing to do, and it's a actually good thing to do. That's why they can do it. it you know, it, if somebody is doing something bad and they know it's bad, they have to somehow make it right in their head. Even if it's only blowing the whole thing off and saying it doesn't matter and it's not important whether it's good or bad or not, right? Screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, okay, then they have made it right with themselves in saying that or doing that. And often, though, they go through many, many, many more mental gyrations to make it right. But the point is that I'm trying to get to is that in this person's heart of hearts, they believe that what they are doing is right, is good, is beneficial to themselves and perhaps to the rest of the world or some, you know, uh, level of the rest of the world. But they've resolved that within themselves. And this is, and this, 
So, th so in a way, they see that it's wrong, but they actually don't see that it's wrong. You see, what, you, you see what I mean? There's a, there's a, there's, a, there's a problem there. At least, there is a, there is a problem of opposition of, you know, it's good and it's bad. But if they execute the action, then basically they came up with saying it's good, and it's right. And I don't know that labeling somebody, you know, a psychopath or, or saying that they have. Uh, empathy problems because they run through that mental rationalization, I, I don't agree with that, right? Because all of us do what I just described. All of us do. We all have rationalized bad behavior, unethical behavior on our own part because we thought for whatever reason that our personal reasoning was more important or had higher priority uh, or was more right than whatever external moral code or rules or guidelines or laws or whatever uh, existed. And this is, and we all do this every single day. When we speed, when we go through a light, when we don't stop at a stop sign, like for example, right, we see this rampant in the world with things that are not really that big of a deal, but I demonstrate the point I'm making here. Is there not that big of a deal. See, there I am rationalizing it right there. We know the rules of the road. We know that mor morally speaking, as a driver, we've been issued a driver's license because we've agreed that we're going to follow the rules of the road and we signed the dotted line and we keep our eyes open for the police who are going to catch us out. And if they're not around, then we try to get away with stuff, right? And we to get away with it because the cop's not around. Nobody saw me blah, blah, thousands of rationalizations or justifications for it. We all do this. And as I'm fond of saying, in destructive cult situations, it's regular human behavior dialed up to 11. That's what goes on in cults. And this sort of thing is also dialed up. So, you know, can you have situations where a person could have trauma or PTSD because they're forced by circumstances or situations to engage in activity that they didn't think they were going to ever engage in or or the activity is is different has a different result or different consequence or effect than they thought it would um you know yeah there's there can definitely be trauma there can definitely be PTSD connected with that but i would not want to overplay that hand and say that that is as is such an absolute rule that if you don't experience trauma as a result of that, then somehow you're, you know, here's your label. And because that's not, you know, I don't think that's a reliable test for what narcissism or sociopathy or psychopathy are. And I think that that, it, given, you know, into lay people's hands who already. I mean, let's face it, people overuse these terms way too much as it is. Um, I certainly will put myself in, in that line as well. I've certainly I've tried many, many times on my channel to clarify what these terms mean, how they're used. I've interviewed, you know, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists and therapists about this, um, about these terms. Uh, and I think we all agreed that you know, they're kind of broadly misunderstood and they are difficult to talk about from a diagnostic context um, and that you have to be pretty sure that you are addressing the individual who's in front of you when you are talking about narcissism and psychopathy and this kind of thing. So I'm only trying to put a little bit of caution out there that, 
you know, we can overreach and we can overplay our hands with, with these kind of rules that, you know, if you're doing bad things and you don't feel bad about it, then that means you're a psychopath. Uh, no, there are other contexts and other circumstances where somebody can be in a position like that and can end up doing really bad things and not realize that they are doing bad things. And then later on, look back and see, oh, those were bad things, right? Like I said, you can change people's moral concepts and ideas. Uh, and, and I think all of us change our moral concepts and ideas through the course of our lives. You know, we're not all born into a moral code or moral situation and then we hold on to that for the rest of our lives. You know, we're constantly changing our ideas of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad and how we're supposed to interact with other people. And at the end of the day, those ideas are what are morality. So anyway, I don't know, maybe you wildly disagree with everything I'm saying here, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there in response to what you said, because this is really interesting stuff. And there's a lot of research to do on this and a lot of study to do. And I'm, I'm anxious to see what comes out of all of it. But my initial thoughts are, Let's be cautious here uh, in the claims that we make about stress and trauma and connecting those things with um, the moral injury uh, idea that you've come up with here. I think it's an interesting hypothesis and it needs to be tested a lot. And then we'll see where we end up with in terms of what theory um, is uh, resulting from that. Marnie Saunders. Tommy Davis was secretly recorded saying to another Scientologist who he was pressuring to disconnect from somebody that there's a reason groups do this. It's integral to their survival. Groups who don't do it get destroyed. And it's just been proven over and over and over again in Scientology's 58-year history. To whatever degree SP scream about how horrible it is, bottom line, it is what works. It is what safeguards the church. This statement actually surprised me because it reveals that disconnection is understood within the Church of Scientology as a strategic policy to protect the organization rather than a purportedly ethical practice to separate its members from harmful elements, i.e. those defined as suppressive persons. What are your thoughts about this? Do most Scientologists view disconnection in this way? Or is this notion of disconnection as strategy limited to the upper echelons of the Church of Scientology? And what other groups that practice disconnection might have Tommy Davis been referring to? Religious groups? He can't possibly have been knowingly drawing parallels between Scientology and other destructive cults, can he? Okay, great question, Barney. And yeah, I think that's, that's exactly what Tommy Davis was doing. Whether he knew that or not is debatable, but that is what he was doing, is he was comparing Scientology to other groups that have had to enforce shunning or disconnection or disfellowship, and he was referring specifically to, the, uh, he obviously was referring to JWs, uh, Mormons to some degree, other religious groups. Um, and this comes right out of, in fact, this kind of even helps solidify and prove my point, that I believe almost all religious groups on this, uh, in this world in history started out as destructive cults. And that's the reason for this is because the insular us versus them tight-knit loyal, fiercely loyal attitude that a destructive cult creates or inculcates is necessary for a forming group to form up and keep growing. And a leader, I should say, it's perceived as necessary. It's actually not necessary, but it's perceived that way. 
And a, and a, a narcissistic type leader in a situation like this is going to organically, whether he's ever heard of or knows anything about destructive cults, he's going to instinctively push into place us versus them, um, you know, uh, loaded language, all the characteristics that we that we use to describe destructive cults are the things that these kinds of leaders naturally do and the followers naturally do uh, when they are creating this tight-knit, close group with very extreme ideas that need to be protected and that they recognize, they do recognize at some level, are not acceptable to the wider society around it, which is why it feels so defensive. They know they're not mainstream. They know their ideas are not in congruence with the moral code and ideas and attitudes of the society in which they live. And so they feel they have to be a bit secretive. They have to keep things, you know, close to the vest, right? They gotta, they gotta like not uh, let anything out and they have to have levels often of membership or degrees with which they will trust the outside world. They'll put layers between them and the outside world. So disconnection is vital to this because if a group member becomes an apostate wants to leave, we can't have this guy lurking about telling people who are in the group why they should be leaving or why he left and sowing doubt and dissension. Can't have any of that. Those guys got to get the hell away from here. Yeah, you want to leave? Leave, but go away and we are not talking to you anymore. And nobody here will be your friend. Nobody here is going to want to have anything to do with you because you betrayed our trust. So this is where the trust thing comes in, you see. All of this it re requires, you know, all these ingredients. A group doesn't have to do this, obviously, in order to survive. But these groups believe they do. And they, of course, they believe that because their leader tells them that this is what they have to do. And it's very strategic. And at a certain level within the organization, they definitely recognize this. Maybe it's only the leader who recognizes it. Maybe his lieutenants, like Tommy Davis here, recognize that and are just kind of speaking, you know, kind of bluntly uh, in this case when Tommy Davis was talking to Larry Anderson on tape. So... He didn't know he was being recorded, by the way. That's why he was saying that stuff. He didn't ever expect that it was going to be made public. But there you go. Um, so I think, that's, I think that kind of explains the situation there. And uh, I don't know. You let me know what you think. Turd Ferguson. Did Hubbard say that Zenu was a psychiatrist? Did his utter condemnation of psychiatrists and psychologists, and essentially anyone else who claimed to have something of value to say about the mind, begin with the mental health community's flat-out rejection of his pseudoscientific therapy. I suppose I'm trying to see if that event was what motivated him to make them the antagonists in his newly birthed ideology. I realize so many people for so many decades have been trying to pierce the veil into the true motivations behind a man who cultivated so much mystique and misinformation about himself, and even after all the research done on the man behind the mystery research experts and ex-members whose experience is a form of expertise continue to come to varied conclusions as to why Ron did what he did. If you have any hypothesis or insight into this, I'd love to hear it. Okay, thanks for the question here. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard's motivations, always food for thought and conjecture and something I've talked about it, it, it you know, all kinds of lengths here. I, I'm taking this up this week because here's what I wanted to say. Um, 
L. Ron Hubbard definitely had a vindictive personality. There is zero question about that. You see it rife throughout his lectures and even in some of his writings. And he no doubt was furious that the APA and the AMA re rejected his work because I know that he thought Dianetics and later Scientology were the bee's knees and he really, really seemed to think that he was onto something hot and real and that it was going to be something that was going to help him and it was going to help everybody else in the world too. That, I don't have personally any question that that was part of what was motivating him. I could be wrong. He could be a complete con man from day one who knew everything he was saying was total horseshit, but I just don't think that was the case. And, um, and I've explained you know, this many times, so I'm not going to re-explain why. I'm just going to bluntly say, I don't think so. I think he really believed he was onto something. Now, he called it Dianetics rather than hypnosis because he wanted to brand his name into history. He wanted the fame and fortune. He wanted the money. He needed the money. And he thought because of the feedback he was getting from friends uh, like um, Campbell, who was the editor of Amazing Magazine or Astounding Science Fiction, sorry, and um, other people who he was working with in 1949 uh, on Dianetics on the subject, um, A.E. Van Vaux and some other guys. Um, he was, I think Hubbard thought because of the positive reactions he was getting with these guys, kind of his test pilot group, that he, and he, then he writes the book, Dianetics, right? And, he's, and he sees that he's getting this positive response. People are thinking this is good stuff. And he's like, aha, I'm onto this, right? I've got something. And he thought he had had something all the way back in the 30s with Excalibur. Remember that whole part of, 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 of Hubbard's story, right? Which I talk about in my book. I've talked about it in video. So, um, so he really did think he was onto something, right? I'm convinced of it. Um, but he also knew that he was on to a money-making uh, property here that could make him millions, and he was not shy or bashful about that either. Also, the other factor to take into account here is that in 1950, psychiatry was in a brutality as a, as a quote-unquote science. It was really just guys in lab coats just wetting their sadistic appetites on people. It was bad lobotomies, transorbital leucotomies, um, electric shock therapy that was not therapeutic at all. It was, you know, it was bad. And that was the state of uh, psychiatry in 1950. They were into, you know, pretty heavy drugs. They did not yet have all the over-the-counter pharmaceuticals and stuff. It was lithium and like, hardcore stuff. I think Valium came out in the 50s, I think. Um, and, uh, and it was pretty brutal. Right, and it was also men in lab coats. It was not, you know, psychology was not as practiced and open, and and there was not self help, and there wasn't, uh, you know, there was just a lot of stuff, and it's so there were a lot of problems with the psychiatry. Is what I'm saying. It's not like Hubbard didn't have reason to criticize them quite intensely, and um, and some of his criticism was deserved. Right? Not all of it, and then not to the degree that he took it, of course. And his claims about Dianetics and Scientology being a suitable substitute for psychiatry and psychology, that's never been true. So it's not like Hubbard was the good guy and psychiatry was the bad guys. It was, you know, they were both bad guys at the time. Um, and we can only say this in hindsight because it's not like the people in psychiatry were 
you know, twirling their mustaches and, you know, and, and all of that. It wasn't, it wasn't like they were all evil and, and horrible and awful people. So, you know, it's just another run-of-the-mill subject of human beings where you're going to get the good, the bad, and the ugly. But Hubbard, being the vindictive guy that he was, he decided that, that he was going to position himself as the anti-psychiatry therapy. He was going to rag on those guys, and he was going to pummel them publicly, and he was going to just, you know, make sure that psychiatry's name was mud. One, because they turned him down, and two, because he thought he had something better than that, what they had. And he wasn't right, but it wasn't like what they were doing was so wonderful at the time, okay? Um, I mean, yeah, I would say a Dianetics session actually would be better for somebody than a transorbital leucotomy. So, you know, in that degree, I have to say that that's true. But that doesn't mean I'm endorsing Dianetics, of course, okay? I think you guys get where I come from on this stuff. Um, okay, so, so that's why I think Hubbard's battle with psychiatry started early on, and he just kept it going. And he even acknowledged in one lecture, he said, you know, look, I just keep this game going because I can, and because, you know, it's a game that we can play, and we can have a, you know, a, he said we could go in there and straighten them all out and get it all sorted out right away if we wanted to, but I just kind of keep this going. Um, well, you know, obviously they couldn't just go in and straighten it all out and sort it out. That was a bit of a, of a ridiculous claim. But the idea that Hubbard could just drop it if he wanted to, yeah, that's true. He could have just dropped it anytime he wanted to. So uh, he kept it going because it was good for his business, you know. And, uh, and, and, then, and then as Hubbard's uh, mental, you know, sort of mentally deteriorated, which I believe started in the 60s, actually, um, he really started getting very paranoid, and he incorporated psychiatry uh, into his paranoid conspiracy fantasy about how the entire world was against Scientology, and psychiatry was at the forefront of that. And he just thought, you know, he, he thought that they were taking down psychiatry when, in fact, psychiatry, you know, didn't really care that much about Dynetics and Scientology at all. Um, so it was mostly something that lived in Hubbard's mind, you know, this, this whole big war and conflict and stuff. Anyway, there you go. Matthew, can you tell us why celebrities don't show up on the list of high donors or get awards from the IAS? I would think that at least some of the celebs donate at the same levels as the other public donors, and I would think that David Miscavige would want to show off their donations to the other members of the IAS. Is this a deliberate choice on the part of Scientology to keep their donations secret, or is this a choice on the part of the celebrity to opt out of receiving an award for their donation? When you don't see celebrity names listed in the IAS mag Impact magazine or on posters or anywhere like that, it's because the celebrity specifically said they do not want that. And there could be lots of reasons why a celebrity would not want to be uh, have their name or face connected with or promoted by the, the Church of Scientology in a public venue, especially these days. But it's always been a consideration. And celebrities are VIPs and their wishes are um, granted, especially when they're giving over millions of dollars at a pop. You know, this is why you've never seen Tom Cruise on stage getting some big, huge life, you know, person-sized trophy or something. He got his Freedom Medal of Valor, and that's all that he, you know, that, that, that was the pinnacle of what he could possibly be given. And so you don't see him on stage getting anything else. But he's been given over money, and that's just kind of what Tom Cruise wants to do, right? 
Um, same with any of the other celebrities who are like that. They're, they're, uh, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, it's not always a good public relations move. And Scientology honors that, I, you know, because they're getting the money. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Kind of went long on some of those answers, so I'm just going to cut it off here. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gab on and, and on at a mad rate about all of this. And uh, again, if you like my show, you think my channel's doing some good work for you and you're enjoying what I'm putting out here, you know, think about joining me on Patreon. All right, guys, regardless of whether you do or not, I really appreciate your support and your patronage and your viewership. Please share my channel around. I would love to have more viewers. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.